0: watch Star Trek. Monkey off my backlog second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host Tessa and with me is Sam.
1: Okay so this has relatively little if anything to do with Star Trek. We're a little late recording this episode so this was recorded the day before it was released so I just have to say apropos of nothing it's nice for one day not to be the political laughingstock of the whole world. One day, it's really nice.
0: Are you referring to the situation in Britain right now?
1: I am referring to the situation in Britain. There is nothing that happened today in this country that was as stupid as that.
0: Just today, though.
1: More dangerous. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure
0: we'll go back to it being us tomorrow.
1: I, no, yesterday or the day before it was the day that House Republicans in the United States House of Representatives, introduced a don't-say-gay bill. That'll mean I have to leave the country. So yeah, just today. Just Just, today. Just today. And the only real connection I can think of, I really just wanted to say that. I just wanted to say, oh my God. Could they be any worse at this today? I read a tweet. You might take all this out. I have no idea. (laughs) I'm at the mercy of your editing. I read a tweet that said, I just I don't I don't know that they know how to govern themselves. We should we should take over for their own it's for their own good. I saw and we something have to, and we have to ensure their religious freedom too. I mean like that's obviously really important.
0: I saw something about asking the Dutch to stage a friendly invasion which is a tactic that they've used before so
1: well you know yeah so I mean I just well, what's
0: the Dutch monarchy looking like nowadays?
1: I don't I, I just, may have just
0: shown my ass there. I have no idea if they still have a monarchy. Good job.
1: Good job. Way to go. I just want to say, if by the time we record the next episode of Tessa Watches Lost, if Boris Johnson is the PM again.
0: Ooh, twist. Actually, the twist would be if even the cat who lives in 10 Downing Street was the PM. You know. He's delightful. Anyway,
1: apparently Boris Johnson's like in the top five main contenders. Just give
0: it to the cat. He already lives there.
1: Question. He really can't do is, a worse job. That is the question. If he you, already
0: knows how to give press conferences.
1: At least he shows up for them. Hey! <laughs> hey, hey. Y'all still don't have Paramount Plus. so You can't watch Strange New World. Sorry, guys.
0: Sorry, Lossie.
1: You ruined the illusion that we're not just talking to one person. One
0: person. Oh, I think more people listen. This I've, I've a, looked at the statistics.
1: This was a this was a five minute long subtweet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Something that's a little bit more related to Star Trek, I have to say, is the other day, and by the other day I mean yesterday, because I don't know how time works anymore. I asked one of your students if they knew who LeVar Burton was, and they said they didn't. They were like, "Who is that?" It's happening, Sam. It's it- happening.
1: Do you know who Mr. Wizard is? No. Well, I guess we're all done here.
0: I'm just saying. It's all fun and games until it happens to me. That's right. On that note, this week, we watched the Next Generation episodes, Conspiracy, and the season one finale, The Neutral Zone. But first, we have some catching up to do. Oh, no. Star Trek catching up. Uh, Star Trek chores.
1: Do we have to do this?
0: Yes, we do. First... We also watched the next three episodes of Lower Decks since last time.
1: That was not what I didn't want to talk about.
0: So you do want to talk about Lower Decks.
1: I love Mariner. I just I just do.
0: I mean, I think the last three episodes really established that Mariner and Boimler are best friends. How reluctant do you feel about friends. this? Is it reluctant, though? I, or is it more of like an R2-D2 C-3PO situation?
1: No. No. I don't think it's like that. I think it's more of a Stockholm Syndrome situation.
0: <laughs> so they have this moment in, this, in episode six, Terminal Provocations, where Mariner and Boimler have to deal with this ensign who is just like out of control, incompetent. Not just incompetent, but like self-serving incompetent. And they seem like they really bond over it. Like the idea that like... They're lower decks and they have to take care of themselves and they have to deal with lower decks problems together.
1: I mean, that one was fine. That is not the one I wanted to talk about. Oh, what about. were you thinking about? I was thinking about Veritas. Oh, which okay. Was, the, which was the a super fun trial episode.
0: episode that we watched this morning. No,
1: we don't know what they're doing. We have no idea. I, I like that lower decks is single handedly dismantling the idea that this is a utopian society.
0: Well, it could still be utopian, no, but not. Can't.
1: No, it can't. And I will tell you why. Because Mariner feels the way that she does. Okay. A, a a utopian society would not waste potential. Just wouldn't allow it. And before you say that...
0: Can you be unfulfilled in a utopian society, No.
1: But nope. I mean, I feel
0: like that's going against human nature. You can have a utopia no. and you still be unhappy.
1: No, no, no. I mean, the thing about it is, is okay, so... We don't get very many glimpses of Earth in the present day. I mean, there are lots of other planets I know, but Earth, right? So if this were a utopian society, it's a society that is utilitarian and individually fulfilling at the same time, which is, of course, a contradiction, which is why utopian societies cannot exist. But if it did, everybody is fulfilled for a couple of reasons. One. They have the ability to discover what will fulfill them. In this case, you have all of these people who enlisted in Starfleet. That is what would fulfill them. In a utopian society, you're less likely to have a situation where you get into something and you're not fulfilled by it because, you know, there's been no all the shit that we go through as kids to you know, grow up thinking we should do this or that. There's a lot less of that going on. But if you were genuinely unhappy with something, this society could and should, if it is a utopian society, redirect you or allow you the space to figure it out.
0: Well, isn't that what's happening though? Because no. in Much Ado About Boimler, we get to see a little bit of her history because she meets her best friend from Starfleet Academy who yeah. is like, guess yeah. captaining the ship. She calls right. it babysitter captain. Sure. But her friend tells her, like, you used to be into this stuff. Like you right. were like all about this and clearly something happened or something is going on and that's why you're doing this. But like the thing is nobody's kicked her out of Starfleet. Right. No people are allowing her to do what yeah, she's doing. But but they're
1: giving her a hard time about it, especially Captain Mom. Right. Like, even Boimler, her best friend believes there's something wrong. That's not utopian. Choosing not to be in charge. And as you know, I am somebody who is very public about not wanting to be in charge. That's why I really dig this. I want to be the person who does this thing, and then I want to be left alone. Except for my friend Boimler, for some reason. <laughs> she also- can't. She, they won't leave her alone. And I don't think that's what she actually wants either. I think she still wants to be, you know, because in Much Ado About Boimler, we see that she pretends to be incompetent. We actually don't know that she's in pretending until her friend calls her out on it. And, you know, in that moment, it's like, OK, she's sabotaging herself. There should be no need to do that.
0: Right. Because she as soon as there's a real emergency, she snaps into like. Efficient, commanding persona, right? right. Like well, she's able the to one, take control of the situation.
1: You're the one who compared her to Kirk.
0: Oh yeah, I th- I still she, think she she's could. Like Kirk. She
1: she would be a better captain than her mom. Why is it? Why not? Why isn't she doing it? She doesn't want to be. Exactly, and they can't stand it. Do
0: you think she's bored?
1: Like, uh, is she a gifted no.
0: child who is burned out?
1: Well, no. See, there's a difference, right? Okay. So there's a difference between Mariner and Christina Yang, right? Which I know <laughs> is what you're thinking. Yes. Christina Yang wanted people to get out of her way, and they wouldn't until Teddy realized it and did the thing. Nobody's in Mariner's way. The only person who's in her way is herself, and before you tell me that self-destructive behavior, which it is, she doesn't, she realized she didn't want this thing the way it was. She worked real hard for it, got there, and realized it was stupid. That's a different problem.
0: I'm curious to know how this particular storyline goes. I'm sure that they'll develop it as we go along. We get our other best friend pair. I've, no- I've noticed that they've paired off a little bit in terms of best friends. Like we usually have like, I mean, they'll mix it up occasionally, but usually it's Boimler and Mariner and Rutherford and Tendy. So Rutherford and Tendy have a very disturbing holodeck adventure. You haven't had one of these yet, but it is a classic trope of the holodeck. Holodeck goes awry, Somebody tries to kill somebody else. We get guest star Jack McBrayer, who has like a very recognizable voice.
1: I'm just going to call him Clippy because Clippy. that's what he is. He is Clippy. He's badgy, but, or whatever, yeah. but, but he's basically Clippy. I enjoy these two characters and their side adventures. And it's a very classical sitcom cartoon trope. The first one I thought of was regrettably Baljeet and Buford. Ew. And I then knew
0: about the baljeet thing. And
1: yes. then I thought about Raj and Howard, and I'm like, we're still not doing great. Yeah. But my point is, that is a this classic. is a better version of it. Well, right. And so it was fun.
0: What did you think about Tendi and the dog?
1: <laughs> that was funny. That I was just good. Didn't
0: want you to worry? <laughs> that, <laughs> Wait, dogs was... don't talk. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> that was good. That was good.
0: And then, of course, the alien trial Veritas that you've, you've talked about, which turns out not to be an alien trial. This might be my favorite episode of the series so far. You this had was your 20 great. minutes. This was you great. had your
1: 20 minutes, which is about how long this podcast has lasted so far, although I'm sure you've cut it down.
0: So overall, how are you feeling about Lower Decks? It's good. Yeah? It's good. So we'll probably finish this season by the end of the year, so we'll, we'll pick it back up when we come back to... Sam watches Star Trek. All right. But before we even get to Next Generation again, we have another piece of homework. I'm
1: sorry I did this. We
0: keep talking. This was
1: my suggestion and I apologize.
0: (laughs) We have kept talking this entire season about how we haven't finished Picard season two. We had one episode left. So we finally, finally bit the bullet, watched the episode.
1: In this moment and in this moment only, I wish I lived in Britain. So you wouldn't have so seen So I him. couldn't have seen this episode.
0: <laughs> there, I thought there was one good part of this episode. I'm really curious to know.
1: Don't do. forget, we also had a cue in Lower Decks.
0: Oh, yeah. That's right. We had a cue. And
1: it was him, too, yeah. right? Yeah. that was great. That was fun.
0: John Delancey voiced the character that he's yeah. well, well known for.
1: So, I mean, like, yeah, he told Picard that he was his best friend.
0: Yeah, he did all of this so Picard would forgive himself so he wouldn't die alone like Q. And I have to say, that and that alone almost makes this season work. Almost. Because for me, like having... I mean, you've only seen the beginning of this character's arc and his relationship with Picard, but like this was actually a really satisfying conclusion to this relationship that has been going on, as Picard mentions, over 30 years. So... To me, that was the best part of the episode. That scene between Q and Picard. And Picard being like, why? No, like, why has it been this whole time like that that you've been bothering me about this? Like it, it was a really, really good, satisfying cap on this relationship. And I think that it mainly has to do with John DeLancey and just the mastery that he has over this character and the way that he and Patrick Stewart have developed this relationship over a very long period of time.
1: Do you remember? I don't remember the context that I said this in, but I did say it at some point in the episode, and I know it was after Wesley, Oh God! but I definitely said we have to protect Mama Crusher. Nothing bad can happen to her next season. Okay. We can't. Yeah. No.
0: Everything else about the episode, though.
1: Everything else blew.
0: So uh, we saw Wesley, and he is now a traveler, which you understand. We
1: saw Wesley, but nobody else did, except for the character we didn't care about.
0: He's in one scene, and it it just feels like he's become the traveler.
1: Great, Hooray. But he doesn't
0: even get to interact with Picard. And he
1: communicates with Data's great, 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 Grandfather's creators, nephews, second cousins, weird clone creation thing.
0: Yeah, I was not into the That's fun. Brett Spiner narrative. No. And then they do a weird con call out. Okay.
1: Okay, here's the thing. They I didn't know this when we started watching season two or season one, obviously, because that's how time works. And I think I've said this before. They had a character for him. And they didn't use it till now? Yeah. Idiots.
0: The other thing that really- They should have just
1: let Shatner direct this. <laughs> he could have done a better job.
0: So the other thing is, is that obviously we know next season that a lot of the new characters have been written out. Gerardi becomes a Borg queen, and I guess she's just never seen again, and Rio Why? stays in the past. Oh,
1: Jesus. What? just?
0: Although we did get another Whoopi Goldberg scene where she explains what happened to them. Sure. Sure. You haven't met Gynon yet okay, as a character here, in TNG. Well,
1: but here's the thing, and, and I've been I've been kind of turning this over in my head. Like Q likes to punk them, right?
0: Mm-hmm. You saw that in Lower Deck. No, I
1: know that, but like, this isn't how time travel works. That's not how any of this works. Q punked them by sending them back to a past, but before he did that. He put them in an alternate universe where there were space Nazis. Remember? Yep. This was a punking. Yes. It shouldn't have changed the present. Why was Girati still a Borg in the future? This was a punking pocket universe.
0: If you're looking for me to defend this season of Star Trek, you are looking in the wrong place. None
1: of this happened. Yeah. None basically. of it happened. How You can't stay in a fake past. You can't do that. <laughs> That's not how any of this works. You can't say, oh, I'm going to punk you and put you in a fake alternate timeline that doesn't really exist. And from that timeline, you're going to go into the past. Which past? The real past? The fake past? I don't know. I didn't write this. This the is other thing wrong. I, the other
0: thing I didn't get, and this actually does tie into one of the episodes we're going to talk about from TNG today is that there's a lot of lore that gets developed over Star Trek about how bad stuff got on Earth before the Federation and Starfleet happened. And
1: by the way, congratulations, Star Trek writers. You nailed it.
0: Yeah. So, but here's the thing. They seem to, like, want to play on this utopian feeling when they can, but they often do it too early for their own history. Like, if you're going to tease Khan which by the way i think is very stupid and i think that that's very self-serving for them to do because they're like oh what what can we put in here that's a buzzword that'll get people all excited it's con but if you're going to do that then how are you also talking about this kid who solves climate change when we know that there's going to be a nuclear war like i don't i don't completely understand how any records still exist of this time period. Okay,
1: so I have a question for you. Multiple choice. And maybe we can actually, your your eyes twitching. Your eyes actually twitching talking about this. So I'm going to ask you this multiple choice question, and then I suggest we go back to TNG. Okay. Let's leave this silly place. Picard
0: but, learns to love.
1: Oh, my God. When they announce, when Paramount Plus announces, because we've had Picard, so there's got to be another name show, right? So when Paramount Plus announces Khan. Never mind. No further questions. No. <laughs> that was
0: it. Leave the character dead.
1: I mean, that kind of feels like what they were doing, right?
0: Yeah, I don't. I'm not interested in that.
1: Maybe Brent Spiner can play Khan. Oh,
0: God, no. Okay.
1: Or one of the super people.
0: We. I'm more, way more interested in Lon from Strange New Worlds, his right. it just relative. Seems like,
1: it just seems like we've got two connections. We've got the character, and then we had the call-out in Picard. We are like one more, and Beetlejuice appears, and we get this show.
0: Yeah, No, I'm not interested in that.
1: Ooh, Michael Keaton could play him. Ugh, okay. Would you watch it if that happened?
0: I want to watch him actually play the role that he's famous for in Batgirl, but I don't get things that I want. We, we,
1: we burn that, Wink.
0: Anyway. Let's, let's talk about TNG. Let's let's forget that Picard learned to love and go back to when he didn't know how to love.
1: And he had hair.
0: And he had hair. So Conspiracy is the 25th episode of the first season. It originally aired on May 9th, 1988. The premise was conceived by Gene Roddenberry in a single sentence overview titled The Assassins. So basically, he just literally said, what if there was a conspiracy in in Starfleet? And then it was expanded into a story by Robert Sabaroth and then adapted for teleplay by Tracy Torme. The episode was directed by Cliff Bull.
1: I think expanded is a very generous word.
0: Yeah. The short version of this is that Picard uncovers a conspiracy within Starfleet. High ranking officers are acting strangely and Picard doesn't know who to trust. Turns out it's parasites.
1: You know, here's what's really fun about this and the next episode together. This is the big thing. I, I really thought we'd already talked about this. I'm like, didn't we podcast on this already? I guess not. Anyway, these two episodes. I don't know how people listening feel about Seth MacFarlane. I think he's clearly grown as a creative person. You could certainly fault him for being where he is on the back of some stuff that doesn't play well now. It's hard for me not to look at the last two episodes of this season and go, you know that season of the Orville we haven't watched yet that was supposedly really great? That's what this could have been. Yeah. it w- These were two episodes that should have been no less than four and all the way up to 10 episodes. There was enough story in these two episodes that they just wasted it. How can... Okay. So you uncover a parasite in Starfleet. First of all, we're just going to solve that problem in like 15, 20 minutes. Well, yeah. Right. Because we're not going to serialize. And and you've explained that to me. That's fine. That's fine. So we're just never going to talk about that again. I don't like it when my fictional television shows get too close to reality. You don't have a thing that topples the government or threatens to and then just never talk about it again. That's dumb. That's not utopian.
0: Right. Well, you were very interested in this episode because it does play a bit like an X-Files conspiracy episode, right? Like this idea that Picard is summoned to talk to his friend, his old friend, who tells him that something is wrong in Starfleet, that it's been infiltrated in some way. He's not sure about it, but then strange things start happening and people start acting in strange ways. It feels very much like Deep Throat, in X-Files telling them, like, don't trust, trust Uh, no one.
1: I thought it was like Skinner. Like, you don't know, is Skinner really on your side or not? Yeah. No clue. Well, the
0: whole point is that you don't know. So, so that is, and we get a very similar thing from Walker, his friend, who dies very soon in the episode. And so there is kind of this tension. And again, I don't think it's executed particularly well, but it is a very interesting premise of... What do you do when you're told that the whole system you trust in and have been working for and working with your whole life has been invaded or compromised? And that seems to be the main internal struggle of Picard and some of the other characters, but mostly Picard in this episode.
1: There's a reason the season of the Orville that I mentioned earlier is season three. This is a season three story. I don't know who these people are. I don't. If this had happened with the OG crew, this would be a much more interesting question. Because I can imagine Spock's extreme reticence. Like He is aware that this can attack and did attack a Vulcan. So he's having to logic out this thing about a system. Kirk is ready to just shoot them all and let God sort it out. And Bones is... Sanity, comma, the voice of. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Sulu and Chekhov are the ones who get infected.
0: Well, Yeah, Chekhov's the first one to get infected. Right.
1: But see, the point is, I know all of this, but I don't know how it should work with TNG. Like, it's really cool that Riker fakes him out. I have no clue that he knows how to do that.
0: Right. That makes sense, because you don't know these characters well enough to know that. No, about I don't.
1: Him. And, and um, you know, you've explained And people listening to this probably know, you know, this is not a great showrunner situation. And this person clearly does not know what they're doing. And and I'll also say, by the way, about that, I wonder, you know, so we have this conception of showrunners and writers rooms. I wonder, I truly wonder, because we didn't, that's an internet culture thing.
0: Well, I mean, I learned about that from the Dick Van Dyke Show, but
1: <laughs> well, I mean, but that's a right, but that's a more typical like comedy writers room, right? The the showrunner writer room dynamic, the one that was abused during the the era of Matthew Weiner and David Chase, David Milch. Not to say that they did that, but it's gotten to the point where. Oh, I can't remember the uh, which showrunner it was, but would put their name on something, even if they only wrote a line on it, because it's their show. And I don't really know how much of that dynamic there was. I don't know how many big-time show creators there were. There was the guy who eventually created NYPD Blue, whose name is escaping me. You had David E. Kelly. Uh, you have the creator of Moonlighting, Glenn Gordon Caron. So, I, I mean, I do know names but I don't know what the dynamic was. I don't know truly how much writing was done in a writer's room or spec writers. You know, did, you know, Do you have writers who are submitting, not spec scripts, but like they are writing scripts on their own and they're being touched up. I don't know how that worked back then. I say like it was so long ago. But television has definitely changed. So I don't know what the landscape is but the feeling that I get is this show is, is managed poorly. We've made so many big jumps since the 90s in how to tell television stories. The golden age happened after this, and it's already over. It's not that we don't have a lot of good TV. We do. But this is predating that. But I still believe, even though this is pre-X-Files, which is, I think, one of the places where you could mark it, I still believe that not understanding how a show develops with its characters, not understanding how to plot within one episode or over multiple episodes. Again, I know serialization wasn't a big deal, but I've seen the original television show The Fugitive, which had a concept carried over the entire series and had episodic content. St. Elsewhere's existed by this point. The OG ER with Denzel Washington and others. MASH. There are shows that did serialization and they understood character development, even if it worked within an episodic format. So I'll just finish by saying, I call shenanigans on this. This is badly done television, badly done.
0: Well, I think it's there's a struggle going on in this first season like you're right the Maurice Hurley who eventually takes over as a showrunner near the end of the first season into the second season and makes some very controversial choices at the beginning of the second season. He is not well liked by the cast or by the crew. But also, at the same time, we have the writer's strike, which we talked about affecting one of the episodes we talked about last week. It affects the neutral zone, which is the next episode, the series finale that we're going to talk about more than it affects conspiracy. But you can clearly see the problems with writing at the end of this first season. I also think that there is a real power struggle, though, between the people who think that this show should look like TOS and the people who want to advance Star Trek into more of the 80s style television yeah writing because and- because you you have the old writers like DC Fontana who's still writing stuff for Trek you have Maurice Hurley who wants to follow Gene Roddenberry's rules about what should happen on Star Trek but then you have these other writers who are clearly trying to build these characters out and are clearly trying to make us invest in relationships with these characters that last long beyond one episode
1: And of course, as a fan of Star Wars, I have no experience (laughs) with these kinds of struggles of vision. I mean, you know, Star Wars classically is known for having a clear vision and executing it, which I mean, is actually not ironic. It's true. It's just J.J. Abrams had a terrible vision.
0: But yeah, what did you think about the parasites who are... They consider themselves to be a superior form of life to humans, but they think that using humans and the Federation as a concept, as a host, will benefit them in this way. Like they're basically taking over a system of power that's already established.
1: I just think it's a really interesting idea that this, this kind of parasite still exists. And and that's something that would exist in a utopian society because it's an infiltrator from outside, which is a classic trope right. of utopian stories. And so it would be such an interesting idea to see this kind of organism with this kind of goal in mind attacking a system that's utopian. It's kind of like it's kind of like when you've removed yourself from you know like viral threats like a cold or anything like that. And then all of a sudden you're exposed to it again. You know, your body doesn't know how to handle it. I remember when I first taught in high school, I got sick several times that year. And the first time I felt like I was going to die. I've never been that sick. And that school crud, um, you know, and you know, those of us who, who went to public school, you get used to it. You, your immune system adjusts to the germ factory that is the school but me coming back into it, not having been there, it killed me. It kills every first-year teacher. But that's just, you know, when your immune system is not faced with these threats, it it draws down. And so it would have been really interesting because this parasite had a very easy time.
0: Yeah, super easy, barely an inconvenience. Right, exactly. To borrow a catchphrase. But
1: that's the point. Because this system is, this is where they start playing fast and loose, right? This is a utopian society, so that makes sense.
0: I just think it's hilarious that, that they been, yeah. value drama. Like, they actually say, like, this, we, we did this so it would be more dramatic. Well, and we get a Bond chair turn at the end. Yeah,
1: just remember that we saw this right after we saw the Parasite episode of Lower Decks. Right. So it's really funny thinking about because that Parasite existed to create attraction yeah it's funny that these parasites both of these parasites are are very chaos inspiring due to their desires that's neat
0: yeah and they follow vampire and the faculty rules you kill the mother you kill the others
1: which is very convenient
0: yeah I mean it works pretty well I think in terms of oh we got to wrap up the story but we don't want to kill everybody who's already infected However, we do get a lot of body horror. This episode is a lot more graphic than I think any episode of Trek has ever been. In fact, they actually removed some of the more graphic bits, like the guy's head exploding at the end, um, from Canadian broadcasts of these episodes.
1: Poor Canadians. They just can't handle it.
0: So yeah, you talked a little bit about uh, Riker is almost taken over by the parasites. Admiral Quinn specifically, who is a character who comes on board, he's already infected and he plans on infecting Riker. I guess it's because they want to bypass Picard. They don't think he'll be as susceptible, or I'm not quite. I'm, the, the reasoning's not clear, but they're more interested in taking over Riker than Picard. The fight between Quinn and Riker is the most hilarious fight I think I've ever seen on Star Trek. There is so much kicking in this fight, like so many high kicks.
1: He's a very flexible person. I'm very happy for him.
0: (laughs) And then Worf also gets involved, but he is no match for, for Quinn's super strength with the parasite. Of course, Bev is the real MVP. This was a move that I think really impressed you. She immediately just like doesn't even think about it, sets phasers to kill, and stuns Quinn, and then examines him to find the parasite.
1: I think this is the moment where I realized she was mom.
0: Yeah? Yeah. This is where you felt it? Yep. Where she came in and solved the problem with a phaser?
1: Somebody has to be (laughs) in charge.
0: Worf and Riker are fucking around with high kicks, and she's just like, (laughs) nope, I got a phaser.
1: (laughs) Ah, The real MVP.
0: That's the conspiracy part of this episode. You did mention this would have been a much better way to kill off Tasha, though, even though you said... I
1: mean, you know, we have to kill off this character. Do we have to kill off this character? Yes, we have to kill off this character. Okay, well, we're going to do this episode with a parasite, and there's going to be a real body count in this episode. We could give that episode stakes by killing off a beloved lead, and it really kind of covers the fact that we're shitty people. Or we could do, and then whatever it was they did. That That's just.
0: A couple of notable things that you <laughs> pointed out in this episode, though. One, does the Enterprise actually get anywhere that they're supposed to go? They do not. They're always on route to somewhere else. They do When not. something happens.
1: Yeah. Because
0: <laughs> they're on their way to get some R&R again, I guess. And. We get because Picard isn't on the bridge. We do get to see Picard in a very low V, though, in his PJs, which was I don't
1: like that. (laughs) I don't like that.
0: But he's asleep, presumably because they're on different shifts at this point, which makes sense if you think about the Enterprise as a entity that has shifts like this. But Riker is on the bridge and he's he's laughing it up with Deanna because Data doesn't get Geordi's dirty joke. Which was funny. <laughs> you actually said you get it now, seeing them together laughing. What, he's sitting yeah. in the captain's chair. She's yeah. sitting next to him. Yeah. Do, 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 do you get it now?
1: I, I get it now. I see it. I see yeah. it. They're,
0: they're trying to go to R&R, and Deanna says, I want to swim. Like, I'm looking forward to swimming. And Data asks about, well, can't you swim on the holodeck?
1: <laughs> and she's
0: like, no, it's not the same.
1: And I immediately said, she ain't no holodeck girl. She
0: ain't no holodeck girl. That joke's never going to get old. But she does say, like, there's something about swimming in the moonlight. And Data's like, you can swim in moonlight? (laughs) Which might be, What a world! Which might be, like, the best, like, data line of both of these episodes. There is also a great update to Data's character because Picard figures that the best way to... Check to see if this conspiracy is a real thing without alerting anybody to the fact that he's checking is to have data look at a long period of information, just look at all the data over like a six month period and extract any kind of correlations from that data. Because if you look at everything, nobody can tell that you're looking at something specific, right? This is brilliant. It makes sense. But data, as he's sifting through the material, he's sitting in his room by himself, you know, doing all of this. He is so happy when he realizes that he's talking to himself. He starts talking to himself, and the computer's like, are you talking to me? And Data's just like, no, I'm talking to myself. It's something humans do.
1: Data discovered neuroses. (laughs) It's so good for him.
0: But my favorite part is that when he tries to explain it to the computer, the computer interrupts him and won't let him finish explaining, just like the rest of the crew interrupts him and won't let him finish explaining.
1: I just love that for him.
0: And of course, we get the very ambiguous ending, which seems like it's setting up perhaps a sequel episode, although it never actually happens.
1: Yeah, it sets up a sequel episode, and the sequel episode is Romulans. Just think about that.
0: Yeah. But it did feel very like Twilight Zone almost, like this idea of like, and they sent a message out saying, come and invade the Federation. Like it did feel kind of like an old time, like sci fi horror ending.
1: I don't know. I mean, like they had so many things that they could have made a ten-episode limited series about several. Yeah, this could have been later. a season. It would have been. But really no, let's do Terminator <laughs> in an alternate universe that isn't real, but is.
0: <laughs> the next episode we did was the season finale, "The Neutral Zone," originally aired on May sixteenth, nineteen eighty-eight. This episode originated as a piece of fan fiction by Deborah McIntyre and Mona Cleary, which I think tells you how desperate they were for ideas in terms of the writer's strike.
1: I just like how authors are out there on Twitter like, don't send me fanfic. Don't tell me where it is. I can't look at it. It's a conflict. I can't do it. No, please don't. I will... Hook my eyes out Oedipus style if you show me fanfic. And these guys are like, anybody got any good ideas out there?
0: No, seriously. Maurice Hurley, who I just mentioned as being this terrible showrunner, turned this fanfiction into a teleplay in a day and a half because of the Writers Guild strike. And the time scale, the fact that they had to not employ writers, the fact that he had to create it this quickly and use all these ideas... It made him abandon the idea of a two-part episode, which would have been the first two-part episode that we would have had on the show. And the first appearance of the Borg, which he fully planned on having appear in this episode, which was delayed until the following season. Although I I kind of am happy because it would have been horrible to have them introduced in this terrible episode. Right.
1: But I've seen a Star Trek or two in my time. And when you tell me that there's something fucking up the Federation and the Romulans, I'm like, it's Borg.
0: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense.
1: It's Borg, bring on the Borg, bring on the dancing Borg.
0: (laughs) So uh, the quick summary is, while observing a long-neglected satellite, Data finds three humans from the 20th century preserved in a cryonic freeze. Meanwhile, Picard takes the Enterprise into the neutral zone to investigate missing Starfleet stations, hoping to avoid a war with the Romulans who they haven't heard from for over 50 years.
1: I know that I'm not a screenwriter. I don't write for TV. Maybe one day, but I know that I don't. I like to think I know a thing or two. And one of the things I know is that when you have a very compelling A storyline, Romulans, we haven't seen them for a long time, but they're back. Oh boy, that's an interesting A storyline. Naturally, let's not bother with it and let's do a B storyline instead because it's fun. I—I I, As I said, I don't write for television. But when you have an extremely compelling A storyline, what you don't do is ignore it for a B storyline.
0: Both these ideas, I think, were interesting in and of themselves. But putting them, smashing them together in this way when there's like no connection, like there's the most tenuous of connections between the two. It really doesn't allow them to develop either very well. Which one do you want to talk about first, the Romulans or the? Let's talk
1: about. Let me speak to the manager.
0: Okay, yeah. So there is a discussion in this episode of cryonics, um, which they're like that was a fad in the in the 20th century. Which I mean, to be fair, it was. And in what's the really 80s. nice
1: about this too is that Paramount Plus in the United States of America is the app that brings you both Star Trek: The Next Generation and The Good Fight, which their last episode before the pandemic started was about cryogenics
0: oh i forgot about that that's yeah right. that's right but basically data and war find three dead people from the 20th century who have been frozen and data doesn't feel comfortable leaving them this way yeah
1: they they find frozen people and data cannot let it go
0: okay fine but he So he brings them back to the ship and Beverly reanimates them because all of the things that caused their death are now very treatable in Federation medicine. So we get Claire, who Data describes as a homemaker and suggests that maybe that's a type of construction work, which honestly <laughs> was one of the funniest parts of the episode. There's Ralph, who is a billionaire... Person Like a CEO, I guess, like a Jeff Bezos type, I'm assuming. And Sonny, who's like a deadbeat musician. Interestingly enough, first of all, I think it's hilarious that Picard returns with a super secret mission about Romulans and also has to deal with this mess at the same time. That was at least funny, if not good writing. And I also like that when he comes back and is like, we're going to go to the neutral zone. Nobody tells him about these dead people that Data has brought back on the ship until he goes down to sickbay and Crusher's like, what do you want me to do with these people? And he's like, what people? She has a very like, this is not my job attitude. Like this, my job was to fix them. And so I fixed them. My job was not to tell you about them.
1: Remember in the last episode when I saved your asses? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. No, no. All right. Well, just to let you know, I did.
0: Picard questions the ethics of bringing them back. He actually has this conversation with Data because Data's like, I couldn't leave them there. Something could have happened to them. And Picard's like, they were already dead. Like, nothing more could have happened to them. It's interesting that Picard wants to have this conversation despite the fact that it is a moot conversation. They are alive now. It doesn't matter whether you think they should have been brought back or not. Like, that's that's done. We're past that.
1: It's weird because it's a situation... That deals with interfering with something in the past, and it doesn't really matter because they've been put in this position. Am I describing this episode or season two of Picard?
0: Oh my god, this is the season that will not leave us alone. It
1: just—you know what's really funny about it is it's like really on brand Star Trek, clearly, and yet it's terrible.
0: Well, I think it's which is also
1: apparently at some points clearly on brand Star Trek.
0: Right. I think it's interesting that. Data feels a moral obligation to bring them to this ship, despite the fact that he knows that Riker is not, Riker is not happy with his decision and Picard is even less so. And he knows this um, because he says, I'll take responsibility for it. I just think that's interesting that Data has like this moral compunction about leaving them there. Data is also very fascinated by these people because they represent a very different kind of human right than the ones that he has been hanging out with. There are a lot of jokes about him in this episode, especially when he doesn't understand who Sonny is talking about when Sonny is like who what who's that dude and data like looks behind him to see who Sonny's talking about. What did you think of these three characters, these three people from the 20th century?
1: Okay, first of all, the musician was too old. Yeah. Like that was that was completely incorrect casting. Next, the fragile, freaked out homemaker.
0: Well, to be fair, she didn't know that her husband was freezing her.
1: Sounds like a real catch.
0: I love that when she faints when she sees Worf though.
1: I I mean
0: (laughs) She wasn't expecting to be alive, much less see an alien.
1: It's fun. It's fun to remember a time when gender essentialism was on display on TV. Like, it's just like, no. And then, Mr. I want to speak to the manager.
0: Yeah, I think Ralph has the most interesting of these storylines because he represents the antithesis of the way they do things in the Federation, right? He keeps insisting that he needs to get back to earth because he's going to have a lot of money, even though money isn't something they really use anymore, which is something that came up in the Picard episode too. And it's just like, he's like, well, what do you do if there's no money? Um, Because Picard tells him we've eliminated material inequity. Like there's no, there's no like super rich people or super poor people anymore. It's just, that's it. And he says, Well, how do you what what's the point of life then? Like and Picard tells him the challenge is to improve and enrich yourself.
1: Which is clearly not what this guy wanted to hear.
0: Right. Well, this guy also talked about control, like this is how he feels in control. And Picard tells him that we know now that control is an illusion. It just it's a very interesting juxtaposition of capitalism socialism, really.
1: You know what would have been fun if this had been an OG crew incident? Oh, and because Kirk would this, have
0: like locked him in his room.
1: Okay, obviously. But can you just imagine the first time something, you know, he called on the radio and Bones is like, maybe you should throw him in the brig. And Kirk's like, oh, no, he's there already. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, how did you do that? Force of will.
0: Is this the first time? I mean, I, I we've obviously skipped episodes, so I can't say it's the first time. But is this the first time we've really seen a replicator in the eps that we have watched? Think so. I think it's interesting that we see the replicator here because this is supposed to be the technology that eliminates material inequity, right? Like this is the thing that makes food for people who are hungry. Like there's Gnocchi no such and thing. Dumplings. Yeah, there's no such thing as like. Starvation anymore because you have this thing that can literally rearrange molecules.
1: Although apparently in lower decks, we find out that it's class based. Y- yeah, so, yeah. That's way true. to go, socialism.
0: Way to go. So this is the thing I was talking about earlier with Picard. So Troy, Troy is in both of these storylines because she does a profile on the Romulans for Picard first to kind of remind us of who the Romulans are, just in case we forgot.
1: Previously on Star Trek. <laughs>
0: But then she goes to help Claire find her family because Claire obviously wasn't expecting to be here. She's going through a lot of psychological trauma of realizing her children are dead. Everyone she knows is dead. And so this is very, you mentioned this Ripley from aliens, right? Her having to look into her family and what happened after she spent what, 60 years out in space. But I, again, I find this odd because Star Trek has said so many times that all of these wars happened, the eugenics wars, nuclear war, riots. Like, we're going to see a lot of, like, Earth history over the years as we go through this. How do we have any records of any of this? Like, how has this survived? How can Troy be like, well, let me look up your name. What's your last name? What would their names be? And how is she able to find it in, like, two seconds? Like, to me, I don't know. It, It feels like they want to be, they want to make decisions like that without dealing with the actual consequences that that many wars and that much devastation would have had.
1: Well, there's always been a group of people who glorify battle and war and fighting for your freedom, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but never really want to acknowledge the reality of it. Those people, if they had their way writing history books, every war would be one page because that's really all there is to talk about. Actually, that's not true. These are the same people who love those, like, biographies that you could kill somebody with. Right. About, like, this general or that general, you know, like, it's really interesting because, as an example, so Ulysses S. Grant, right? hmm I don't care about him as a military general, but, I mean, like, people love to do all that. What's far more interesting is that there was no presidential pension. He was an alcoholic and broke. And who is the person who made sure he had income? That's right, Mark Twain. Was like, hey, Brosif, people would enjoy your life story. Write it down. I'll help you get a publishing contract. He did, and the publishing contract that they offered Ulysses S. Grant, former president of the United States, was so insulting that Mark Twain wrote to them and said, you have to be fucking kidding me. Where is your sense of anything? Pay the man. People who are fascinated by historical progress, they valorize the wrong things. And so this is an example of that. You know, like, oh, there were wars and they were terrible. Do you want to talk about how terrible they were, the ramifications?
0: Nope. But the thing is, is that Star Trek will. It will on occasion Why? talk about how terrible it was. That's the whole point of Khan as a character, right? But it's like,
1: but that's I, so I far. Know, but that's so. so, look, so far I removed. know that
0: it's bad writing. Like I right. know that that's actually what this is. It's like that they want the history to work the way that they want it to work, so they can do the plot of their episode. But to me, it just, it feels combined with what happened in that Picard episode where they're talking about, like, oh, and this kid solved global warming. And it's right. like, would that have really happened before all these wars happened?
1: No, so but like, the other, but the big problem here, and this goes back to Khan. Yeah. This is what you hated about Khan. You can have this really stupid idea, you can also have the wars don't put them together in the same sentence or we'll start to see the problems with the internal logic of this history. It doesn't work and it doesn't matter as long as you don't look too closely.
0: Star Trek Beyond is also very interested in the after effects of those wars, right? Because the villain of Star Trek Beyond is from those wars. Like, Basically, he was like, the utopia happened and I didn't have a place in it. Anyway, it's just a very interesting discussion that I don't think... Star Trek. It wants to have it, but it also doesn't want to have it. Let's talk about the Romulans. First time they've had contact in 50 years. Troy get does it, her little profile reminding us who they are. She calls them creatures of extremes. She says they look like the Vulcans, but they are very different from the Vulcans. There is also a slight redesign that's supposed to help with this. Michael Westmore, who is doing a lot of the, the prosthetics, wanted to make sure that they actually looked different from Vulcans in this version. So they get like more pronounced like forehead ridges which I think is interesting, but I don't think they always follow through on that redesign in later series, so whatever. What did you think about this interaction? Because we get a lot of vibes at the beginning of this episode of, well, of course the Romulans did it. Of course they're doing this. They're testing us. They're trying to see if we're still here. And Picard is taking all this advice from his officers and he's sort of nodding and going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then we get this confrontation and everybody wants him to fire on the Romulans. But he's the one who's sort of patient enough to untangle the idea that they don't know what's going on either. What do you think about this plot line and how it fits into the TOS episodes where we saw a lot of people saying you have to fire on them? They're just evil people.
1: Well, now that I know that it's fan fiction, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. This is terrible writing. Okay. Like, I, I enjoyed both of these episodes. right? And you know that. But now that I understand that this is terrible writing because it's actually terrible writing, I'm not saying fan fiction is terrible writing. You know I don't believe that. Right. But this is a pastiche of things that happened in the original series. This is what it would be like if somebody took the Star Trek they knew and wrote it with these new characters. That's exactly what it is. Picard would never do this.
0: Do you think he would have fired on the Romulans?
1: I don't think he would have just charged in there knowing it was probably Romulans.
0: Oh, yeah, I see. He would never be in this situation no. to begin with. I see.
1: I mean, this show literally started by being hijacked by Q. Yeah. You're going to tell me that the guy who got hijacked by Q twice who just had his chief of security dead by oil slick. <laughs> The guy who just barely in- it survived a parasitic invasion that almost toppled Starfleet. Yeah, sure, let's go. Let, the let's neutral. go, maybe yep. do a
0: war with the Romulans. This will be fun. Yeah. Worf especially objects to working with them, citing his past on the bridge, saying, you can't trust them, they killed my family on Kittimer, and then the Romulans insult him by calling him a dog, basically put your dog back on his leash which tells you, I think, everything you need to know about the relationship between the Klingons and the Romulans. What did you think about the way that they sort of bring in these past atrocities or these past conflicts to remind us of... I, I, It's not even just the tension. It's this idea that these are two... These are two diametrically opposing points of view, the Federation and the Romulans. And the only way they can get along is literally by having a strip of space between them where nobody can cross it.
1: Well, we can't have the Klingons be the villains anymore. So, what if we have the Klingons, but they're not the Klingons?
0: But they had the Romulans in TOS too.
1: Sure, fine, whatever.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's—I I just think it's interesting because I think you're right. It is very much a TOS version of this story. But I do think that, and I don't know if this is Marit Hurley. I don't know if this is the fan fiction people. I do think it's interesting that they're like, okay, but what if? we talked about how all those prejudices are blinding these people to the idea that maybe there's a third enemy out there. But like Picard is the one who's just like, I'm not going to start a war without knowing. (laughs) Like everybody seems to want a war with them because they're like, if we don't start it, they will.
1: And this is in the same episode as the cryogenically frozen people. I mean, it feels like very cold
0: war storytelling.
1: The more I talk about this episode, the more I get just frustrated by it. I could also bring up the idea that if you're going to introduce a new enemy, maybe you shouldn't spend the entire episode doing previously ons. Right. Maybe, And so that's, again, this is a third season story. We shouldn't have to be reminded of all this because you already had episodes for that.
0: Or they could have done a Romulan episode earlier in the season to do all of this. Sure. And then introduced the board. I mean, we Again, got
1: flashbacks to Tasha's Rape Planet. We could have had a flashback <laughs> to this.
0: Yeah, I'm not. I, yeah. Anyway, all right. Leon Rippey, you said he was miscast as LQ Sonny Clemens, but I have a feeling he got the role because he previously appeared alongside Jonathan Frakes in North and South. So that's like a fun connection.
1: Okay, I believe it.
0: I, and then I was like, Jonathan Frakes was in North and South? Now I kind of want to look up this version of North and South.
1: It's not North and South. It's not it's not the one you're thinking of.
0: It's not? What is it? It's my 19th century British brain. Oh. No. Tessa. Oh, it is not.
1: I told you. So we had to look it up just to make sure because I was definitely saying this unconfirmed is it Patrick whatever It's a
0: crazy number.
1: Yeah, this is okay, so Child of the 90s. In the 80s, we had these things called miniseries. You What's might that? remember miniseries from Lavar Burton's early career.
0: <laughs> Here's I the mean- alleys in this. That's another Star Trek connection. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. But yeah, I, as soon as you said he was in a miniseries called North and South, I did remember this. And it, actually, it's interesting because this is a tie-in about people's fascination with history, right? Like there was a um, not... Right around the same time as Next Generation, there was also a big miniseries about the Alamo, which is how a lot of people learned that Santa Ana was the villain. Sure. Exactly. Sure he was. No, 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 but that's exactly the point, right? I mean, it's that kind of fascination with history, but only a certain version of it. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to know that he was in this miniseries.
0: Now that I know it's about the Civil War, I'm like 100% less interested in it than if it had been based on the British novel. But the really exciting thing for Star Trek fans is that Mark Elamo made his second Star Trek appearance in this episode, having appeared in Lonely Among Us as the Antigon leader. And of course, people know him best in his recurring role as Golducott on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He is most well known for, is it Cisco's frenemy? Enemy? I don't know. Uh, However you would describe that character, that that is who this is. He plays Ralph. So Sam, looking back on these episodes that we have watched of the first season, we've watched probably about half of them, I think. What did you think of this season in general? What are your feelings on the next generation so far?
1: I still like this show better than the original one. I know it doesn't sound like it after all the complaints I had, but it's a better... Well, I'd like to say it's better paced, but clearly that's not true. I don't know why. Against all odds, I like this one better. It just seems more...
0: Is it because of the characters, perhaps? No. Or is it just a more familiar style of television? I miss
1: Bones. I miss Bones. I miss him too. And Scotty. And the other people, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it's a more familiar style of television. So I enjoyed it.
0: Are you looking forward to season two next year? Yep. Since this is the end of season one of The Next Generation, we are going to change gears next week and resume our other recap podcast, Tessa Watches Lost. Sam, do you want to tease it?
1: Let's get weird, everybody.
0: Season five. You can find me on Twitter at TheBuyParadox and Sam at Sam underscore Morris nine until January. Live long and prosper.